Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. Welcome to Bible class this morning. Uh, as is our usual and standard practice here, we are looking at the lessons for next Sunday in the lectionary, and that is Series C this year. Uh, there are handouts over on the bleachers if anyone uh, would like a handout. And uh, we welcome all those li listening, not only on AM 850 KFUO here in the St. Louis area, but worldwide on KFUO.org. But before we dive into God's word, let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you thankful for the gifts you have given us. Thankful for the gift of your son and his sacrifice that paid the price we never could. Thank you for the peace that comes from knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the faith that you gave us in our baptism. We pray that you would bless all those who are traveling this morning and traveling in the weeks to come over summer, and that you would allow us to serve you in all that we do. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. If you uh, take a look at your handouts, we are looking at the sixth Sunday of Easter, and our first, uh, the first reading is actually not a reading at all. In place of the psalm, the regular psalm of the day, I wanted us to take a look at something we maybe don't usually take a look at, which is the intruit. Now, the intruit is uh, traditionally sung to signify the beginning or the entrance, that's literally what it means in Latin, to the service of the word. It was typically sung either responsively by a choir and a congregation, a pastor and a congregation, or even two choirs. And it highlights what will be the theme of the day. And that's specifically why I kind of made a little bit of an audible here today and wanted us to take a look at the intro, which is Psalm 55. Psalm 55 is a psalm of David. And to give it a little bit of context, Psalm 55 is a psalm that David wrote when he was facing a time of great persecution. We don't know the exact moment in his life. The best guesses uh, from scholars are that it was either during the time in which Saul was looking to put him to death or during the time in which his own son Absalom revolted against him, drove him out of the city of Jerusalem while he was king and was also looking to put him to death. But you'll see the distress as we go through Psalm 55. And if you have uh, your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn to the Psalm because we're gonna look a little bit at more than just what the introit uh, has us look at with that Psalm. But let's first start with what's known as the antiphon. It's what an introit starts with. It's the first verse and it is repeated as we'll see at the end of the introit. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. And here David is staking his claim very clearly. He's encouraging himself not in his own ability to escape the persecution, the danger that is following him, but rather in God's ability to sustain him in the midst of that. And this was very serious for David in Psalm 55, starting 
at verse 5, we read that fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. That highlights just the extreme lengths to which David feared for his own life. You know, they didn't have Southwest Airlines in that day, but I'm sure if they did and they asked him if he wanted to get away, the answer would have been a resounding yes. And that really is going to set up the theme not only of this introit in Psalm 55, but the theme for the entire day. It was interesting as I was looking at this psalm and kind of doing a little bit of research on just how an introit has been used, and specifically within the Lutheran church, one of the things that I noticed was that Luther himself advocated strongly for using the whole psalm as part of the introit. And for many psalms, we do do that. Now, for Psalm 55, we do not, and it's simply a logistical reason. It's 23 verses, and so after the antiphon of verse 22, uh, it, we read verses 4, and then we jump all the way to 16 through 18, and then again we'll see the antiphon, verse 22, is repeated. Here in Psalm 55, uh, David describes that he's been betrayed by a friend. Psalm 55, verse 14, uh, sorry, verse 12, David says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. And it is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. And you can see just how affected David is by this betrayal. Whoever this was that betrayed him, whether it's Saul or his own son Absalom, all these categories do apply. This is someone David trusted. It's someone David cared deeply for. It's someone David even prayed with in God's house, in the temple. He calls him a companion and a friend. And as we look at as the introit continues, we had the antiphon, verse 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. And then as we get into the next section, verse 4, we read, he will never permit the righteous to be moved. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. And then we jump all the way to verse 16, like I said earlier, but I call to God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. See, David's response to this anguish, the danger that he faces is that he's going to call to God. He's not going to call on foreign enemies to come help him out rather he trusts that God will sustain him in this time of trial and this great burden. One of the interesting things I noticed, if you, maybe it sounded a little odd when we read through it, is when he says how often he offers his complaint, he says, he starts with evening. He says, evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and my moan. 
I think most of us, if we were to describe, you know, well, what's your day start with? We don't say the evening, but that's exactly how it worked. That's how the Jewish mind would have thought about a day. That it starts at evening, and then the next part of the day is morning, and then the last part of the day, it would be noontime and thereafter until it got dark. So while in English and in our 21st century mindset, maybe it sounds a little odd, this would have been a typical way to describe offering your complaint all the time, morning and night. He just starts with night, and so he says night and morning and at noon. And it reiterates that David trusts that God is going to hear his voice. I'm reminded of 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter says, Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And then we get to verse 18. That he, God, redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. Here David is admitting there's lots of people who are after him. This is not an isolated individual. Maybe it's one man's motivation, but he's got enough sway, so to speak, that many are going against David, looking to put him to death. And you have to feel for David. I mean, that would have to be quite a heart-wrenching situation to be in, to have a friend or a trusted companion, an ally, we could think of it as a brother or sister here in our church body, our congregation, a brother or sister in Christ that we truly cared about. And when we get angry, we typically don't seek to put someone to death, but that's exactly what was happening here in Psalm 55. And then you'll notice there's a bolded section on your handout, and that's what's called the Gloria Patri. And you probably are familiar with this from any time we read uh, a psalm or in this case, the intruit, and that is glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. That statement is not in Psalm 55, but rather it's the congregation's response. That's why we all say it. Oftentimes, even if a psalm is read responsively, both either the lectern and the pulpit side, you know, here at St. Paul's we sometimes do that, both will say this Gloria Patri. And Gloria Patri is just Latin for glory be to the Father, so you can see how they got that name for it. But it's a statement from the congregation as they're going through this psalm, the intruit, entering into the service of the word that we believe in the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and glory ought to be to him. And then I said at the beginning that antiphon is going to be repeated as the last thing that is a part of the introit. And so again, we have cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Verse 22 is a pretty stern and welcome, if you ask me, reminder that whatever our burdens may be, whatever burdens you in life, whatever is given to you, that the Lord will sustain you. Now you notice David doesn't say, I cast my burdens unto the Lord, and therefore I have no more burdens. You know, sometimes that can be a very easy mistake to make as Christians to think that somehow that this is going to mean that life is going to go swimmingly from here 
on out for us, that we're not going to have conflict or strife or burdens to deal with. And the reason why this intro, I think, is very important, as we'll see in our gospel lesson, is the theme of the day, what Jesus is telling his disciples, is very much that the sustaining that occurs is a peace that the world cannot understand. That in Christ, we as Christians have a peace that goes beyond all understanding, that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So that's just a little bit about the introit this morning. Are there any questions? I know that was kind of maybe audible from our normal practice of one of the readings, but I thought it was good to look at, especially when we look at the gospel lesson and what's coming up. Uh, No? All right. Well, let's move on to the gospel reading then. The gospel reading, and this is one of two weeks in Easter where you actually have an option for the gospel. When you look at the lectionary, they list two uh, options, and I, uh, we as a church are going with the first, I guess, of the two options, both, week, both weeks, which come from John chapter 16. And for next week, this is going to be one of those uh, weeks where maybe it seems a little odd, our starting point, because it actually cuts a paragraph in half. For those of you who were in church this morning, our gospel lesson ended right where this one begins. And so there's actually not really a clean break. And because of that, it's kind of important to understand that context of what Jesus is discussing here in John 16. So I'm going to go back to John 16, verse 12, and we're going to read from 12 to 22, the gospel lesson that is for today, actually, that we heard read in church earlier. If you're at the 8 o'clock service or if you come to 1045, you will hear uh, in just about an hour or so. And we read, I still have many things to say to you, and this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me? And because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What, is, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, for your hearts will rejoice, 
and no one will take your joy from you. As we read that, and if you had your bulletins or have your Bibles out and are looking at it, what do you notice about those last, I guess, three verses there, 20, 21, and 22? What foreshadowing, I guess, could you say that Jesus is presenting to his disciples? Yes, his death on the cross. Exactly. That he says in verse 22, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. And he's also talking about himself here a little bit when he talks about the joy of bringing someone into the world. You think about life and the life that we receive in Christ. And he truly went through a sorrowful and anguish on the cross. We read in the Garden of Gethsemane, he crying blood. He knew the pain that was going to happen, and we've just gone through it about, what, six weeks ago now in Holy Week. And so as we kind of keep that in mind as we look at the Gospel reading for next week, that is going to lead right into where we start, which is verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. So what day is it? Well, that day that you will see me again and your hearts will rejoice. This is one of those times where sometimes I wish we could like add a little blurb or an insert before the gospel reading just to explain what that day is. Because perhaps if you don't remember the readings from last week when you come to church next Sunday and the reading, the gospel reading starts with, in that day... The natural question is, well, what day is that? So it is the day in which your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you because Jesus speaking to his disciples says, I will see you again. So verse 23, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Now, thinking of the context that we just described from what preceded this, if you weren't aware of that context, how could this verse maybe be easily misapplied to what was going to be happening for the disciples? If we look just at that last part of verse 23, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. That's exactly what I was thinking, that if you just take those statements by itself, that those few words, it sounds like a prosperity gospel, where someone is a Christian because they're a Christian, therefore worldly riches and goodness, a stress-free life, the house and the job and the promotion they all want come freely to them because that's the point of the gospel. And that's a big, dangerous, uh, dangerous uh, misunderstanding that unfortunately quite a few Christians sometimes have especially if you quote a verse like that and don't provide any of the context. But since we have gone through the context a little bit of what preceded this, what do you see him telling the disciples that he will give to them? And maybe it might help if you look at the, if you have your Bibles open, verses 12 and 13, and we think about where we're at in the church year and the days that are, that are coming up, uh, on the Thursday after this Sunday, so not this Thursday, but next Thursday, is Ascension. And then right after Ascension comes 
Pentecost, right? What did the disciples receive at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit. And so when we read, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Jesus is pointing to the fact that he was going to be ascending. And if you look at that preceding uh, narrative, the fact that he says, I'm going to be in a little while, you will see me no longer, and then you will see me again, he's directly telling them that pretty soon he's going to be ascending. And this is pre-crucifixion, by the way. So this is him foreshadowing what's going to happen after the resurrection. And it's why we have it here in Easter 6 and not right before uh, Holy Week. It's because Jesus is pointing to the fact that he's going to ascend and that the Holy Spirit is coming. And we continue reading in verse 24. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And again, if you just took those verses by themselves, you could easily twist this into something that was, well, I'd really like a shiny new car. Yes, Jan? So the question was, when we ask in Jesus' name, it's not just by saying the name Jesus, it's some secret password, but rather there's more to it. There's asking for his will to be done. And that is exactly right, Jan, that when we pray, you know, it's easier said than done, like a lot of things, to say, thy will be done. We say it every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Christ himself taught us to pray. But when you think about it, to actually give it up to God and say, thy will be done, can sometimes be a very hard thing for us to do. And that's what I was trying to point out maybe a little bit by looking at those. If you thought of those just by themselves, it could appear as if by praying in Jesus' name, it's some sort of secret passcode or you now have the... You know, the, the right combination in order to get exactly what you want in life. But rather, Jesus is, instead of looking at it like that, in the context of John 16, Jesus is preparing his disciples, equipping them for the mission that they are going to be sent to do. And we'll see that a little bit more um, as we get uh, forward about, I think it's verse 32 is when he talks, starts talking about scattering them. But you're exactly right, Jan, that there is more to it than just this combination, but rather trusting not only in God and his will in your life, but truly believing that his will will be done. And I think it's one of those things where uh, so often as Christians, you think about the Lord's Prayer, when we pray, thy will be done, that's one of, probably if you ask most children, where does the phrase, thy will be done, come from? They could tell you, the Lord's Prayer and yet, when we think about what that entails and how many times we've said it, and yet how many times we've probably not actually thought it, if we'd really got down to the nitty-gritty, we'd prefer for our will to be done because we want our will to be what we want. And hopefully God's will winds up with my will because then we'll be right in this, you know, simpatico. And we all know things don't exactly work that way, and for good reason. You know, we are sinful People, and quite frankly, a lot of our wills, even the most humble of us, a lot of times what we will for is a very selfish uh, situation, or I guess a selfish outlook on what we ought to receive. So let's go down to verse 25. And now we actually do start kind of a new section. And before we begin, I guess I should ask, are there any more questions on what we've covered in those first two verses thus far? Jan, did that answer your question? 
Correct, yes. That the, the, here the, it's a great example of how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work as a triune God, that they work together, and that it, it's really a, a strong um, statement that Jesus is making that get ready, it's coming, and here's what's going to happen. Verse 12, we read, the Holy Spirit is coming to you, and that in the Spirit we are led to understand God's will. And again, sometimes even as earnestly as we like to try and understand God's will, there are times we don't understand what maybe is going on around us. But you're exactly right, that when he says, until now you've asked nothing in my name, asking you will receive that your joy may be full. And even before that, in verse 23, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. This is directly, uh, I guess, foreshadowing of the coming of the Holy Spirit to the disciples in Pentecost. All right, any other questions before we move on? All right. Verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Now, if you think about it, well, where did he get these figures of speech? Why why is this such a pertinent conversation? Again, this is where context, going back to what uh, the reading is for today, earlier in chapter 16, is important because the disciples were saying to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while you will not see me, and again, a little while you will see me. And so they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. So when Jesus said, I have said these things to you in figures of speech, he's directly referring to the conversation the disciples were just having amongst themselves. But then there's also a second uh, a twofold, I guess you could say, point to this response. When else did Jesus routinely use figures of speech? Yes, in parables, in his teaching, uh, often to uh, the disciples, but then also to the Jews and the Gentiles, he would use parables. And so we continue that uh, in verse 25, that the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Here Jesus is saying there's a specific time that is coming, a time of plain language, a time that the Spirit is going to come to you. And so when we read in verse 25, uh, in the hour is coming, Jesus is saying, if you look right at verse 26, in that day, those things are synonymous. This day, this hour, this is a specific to- uh, point in time. And here, Jesus uh, is even echoing a little bit as we read into 26. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that you uh, say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I come from the Father. It's kind of interesting when you think about that statement and where else that might sound familiar. I first thought of John 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus has been telling the disciples about the Father, that the Father himself loves them, 
And now because the disciples love Jesus, because we as Christians have faith in what Jesus has done, and we'll see in a little bit the disciples give an expression of faith in what he was going to do, though they don't know it just yet, that through Christ there is no longer that separation with God. Through the cross and the resurrection, we have access to the Father that through our sin we should have no right to possess. So let's continue uh, into verse 27. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Here you almost get Jesus explaining his mission in a couple verses. You know, the famous... Uh, I guess I should, well, famous, it is famous. What's the most well-known Bible verse if you were probably to ask someone on the street? John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. If we read verses 27 and 28, think about how that relates back to John 3.16. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Jesus is preparing his disciples for the fact that he is going to depart from them, but also for the fact that that separation from God, the separation in their sin, that debt that they have is going to be paid on the cross. Now, if we get to verse 29, we have what I sometimes call the ironic response of the disciples. Because they don't understand he's talking about a crucifixion coming up in just a few days' time. And depending on how you chronologically uh, take this, even perhaps later that evening, uh, in John, John 16 is this conversation between Jesus and the disciples. John 17 is what know, is known as the priestly prayer. And we're actually going to look at that just a little bit when we, get, uh, when we finish with the gospel reading today and then John 18 is when Jesus uh, is betrayed and arrested in the garden so the disciples say the ironic response is ah now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you this is why we believe that you came from God now, I want to be clear, I'm not saying the disciples did not believe what they were saying, but we see in their response to the crucifixion, whether it's Peter's denial or them fleeing in fear, that they did not quite understand how this was going to take place. In verse 28, Jesus kind of gives them the full circle of his mission and the disciples say, ah, oh, well, now you're speaking plainly. But as we know, they're not entirely prepared for what's about to happen. Jesus answered them, we're at verse 31. Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. 
In the world you will have, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now I am going to step back for just uh, a moment uh, and, and look a little bit at verse 29 there where the disciples say, Oh, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech and call you back to verses 16 and 18 of uh, chapter 16 there. A little while you will see me no longer, just what we've been talking about. And I want you guys, I want to know from you guys, do you see a gigantic difference? This was something that struck me, and I couldn't really find too many commentators necessarily talking about it. But do you see a gigantic difference in how Jesus talks in verses 16 through 18 and how he talks in uh, verses 25 through 28? Brandy said no. Yeah, this is what kind of struck me. And this is where, I, you know, you think about the disciples' perspective, and they were so desperate to try and understand this, and you almost have to wonder when you're reading through this, you go, well, obviously they weren't prepared for the crucifixion, and they were not quite prepared for what was going to be occurring just a little while later. And so while this is a confession of faith, while they do say now we, uh, we know that you know all things and that... Uh, and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. It's almost that human response, right? Have you ever, I don't know, maybe it's like a math class, or uh, in my case, it was probably a chanting lessons, where you don't understand the material at first. And so you have the, the, the teacher go through it one more time. And he goes through it one more time, and you still don't understand what you're supposed to be getting. Nothing has clicked, but about nine times out of ten, when the teacher asks you, so you get, do you get what I'm saying now, you know, Johnny? Or Johnny says to him, yeah, sure, yeah, much better. And in his head, Johnny's thinking, oh, no. <laughs> now, again, like I said, I did not find a commentator who, who could really, who saw that. It was just something that struck out to me as far as you notice this, and, you know, these disciples were reminded of how human they are. And they are men, just, or men or women, creation, God's creation, humanity, just like you or I. And they fall into the, sometimes, I think, the same temptations or even the same uh, idioms to save face, you could say, that you or I do. Yes. Yeah, so the comment was, you know, is this... Perhaps they've had inklings about this type of language before when Jesus has said things to this effect uh, to them, and they just don't want to face it. You know, it's, it's kind of ignorance is bliss. As long as we put that out of our minds, we don't have to maybe come to this conclusion. And I also think there's an element to it where the disciples still did not fully understand this was not going to be um, in their lifetime, their earthly lifetime, I should say, a temporal kingdom. You know, we, we went through Palm Sunday now six weeks ago, and, you know, the people are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. They think this is going to be their king. He's going to sit on a literal earthly throne, and obviously the throne that Christ does sit on is one that is far greater than an earthly throne. But I'm reminded, I think it's Mark 7, when they're arguing about who should be uh, first, or, and which one will be greatest, 
And Jesus says something to the effect of, you know, the Son of Man will have to die in three days rise again, and they get mad at him. What do you mean? You can't die. We've staked our claim on you taking care of everything. So I agree that I think there is an element to this where there, uh, and I don't, you know, sometimes we can laugh at the disciples and their response, but you realize what a human response that is and how many times in our own lives we have things that, you know, it's nice to just not think about that because when we're forced to think about it, we're left with a pretty unpleasant or uncertain picture. And as we read what Jesus answers them, and this is why I put it right next to Psalm 55, it struck me just kind of that very thing that how often we pretend to just act like our burdens don't exist and how different that is from the actual response we should have uh, is pointed out to us in this text. So Jesus answered them, do you now believe? And in the Greek, it's interesting. Now, the, the do does not have to be there in the Greek, but it's just literally, now you believe, question mark? Now you all believe? As if, and so, again, you don't want to get too uh, nitpicky there, but there is an element to where, in some ways, Jesus is calling them on this very fact. You know, whether or not they did fully understand this, like they just confessed to do or not, which we know they did not fully understand it. In some sense, Jesus is calling them on that. Oh, so now you believe. Now you get it. When he knows, of course, they don't, they can't quite comprehend what's about to occur. Now you believe. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Now there's two things there when we're talking about scattered. What happens when, well, first off, when they're eating dinner, Peter says to them in the Last Supper, you know, I will never leave you. I will never deny you, Lord. I would die for you. Of course, we know he doesn't. That uh, he does cut off the soldier's ear, but then after that, he scatters, and the rest of the disciples scatter, and there's only a couple that stay close by for Good Friday. But then there's also the second part of it, and this is the one I want to focus on, is think about, again, what is coming up in the church here. That in about 10 days, we're going to have Ascension, and then right after that, we're going to have Pentecost. And you think about the mission of the disciples to spread the gospel to those who had not yet heard of what Christ had done. And you think of the mission that Jesus is calling those men, the men who say they now understand everything, even though they don't, too. And he is reminding them that you will be scattered each to your own home, and you'll leave me alone, yet I am not alone. For the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You think back to Psalm 55 and specifically that antiphon that's at the first, at the start and the, the bottom section of uh, that intruit. Cast your burdens on the Lord, and he will sustain you. 
that he will never permit the righteous to be moved. And you look at verse 18, right before the glory of Patri, he redeems my soul and safety. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage. For many are arrayed against me. And you think about how God has actually sustained each one of us. And you think about what he says in what Jesus says in John 16:33 that in the world you will have tribulation. It's interesting this week I saw on Friday that this coming week I think it is NBC Nightly News is running a week-long thing titled America under pressure. That Americans feel more pressure than ever. And with that, there are no shortage of new miracle methods or ideologies on how to solve the tribulations and burdens of this world. And as things get easier on us, I mean, quite frankly, things are easier on us now than they probably ever have been in human history, we seem to feel more and more of the tribulations and burdens of life. It's a great irony, if you think about it. All the things that we have automatically done for us that we can pick up our cell phones if we want and FaceTime someone in another country in a matter of seconds, or that we can order our dinner for tomorrow night, this morning, and it will be ready at that specific time, at that location, for you to conveniently pick up. And yet we never, well, at least studies have shown that we have never, in the last 30 years or so, felt more burdened, felt more of the tribulations of this world, and I can't help but think about what Jesus says, that I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. And as people more and more look not to Jesus, but look to the outside world, look to their earthly comforts, they keep finding less and less peace. Even though things should be easier and easier, they're saying, well, no, this is more burdensome, this is harder and harder. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've never quite been in this situation like David was in Psalm 55, where the burden I had to cast upon the Lord was a friend, a companion, looking, actively seeking with an army to put me to death. I mean, talk about a burden. That is a burden. And then you think about what the disciples are going to be experiencing, both the joy, but also the heartache, also the tough times. Jesus rose from the dead and he gave them a mission in Pentecost. They, it's all wonderful. But each one of these disciples, except for one, will die as a martyr. And when you think about that burden, you realize why true peace can only be found as Jesus says, in me. Because he has overcome the world, and we are going to have tribulations in the world. That's a matter of fact. The Bible makes it so, but even, or the Bible says, I should say, that it is so, but even without that verse, 16 verse uh, 33, we each and every one of us know that that's a fact of life, that in the world you will have tribulation. 
And so then where is the peace and the comfort? Well, it's the only thing that's overcome the world. It's the one who sustained you from your greatest burden. It's Jesus' victory for God's people. And it's interesting what comes next in John, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 17. And if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open to John 17, because I want to read for you uh, the week after Easter. is uh, only, We only get six verses of this in the Gospel, but I want to read the first 20 verses. We get 20 through 26. I'm going to read John 17, 1 through 19, so that in two weeks from today, maybe you'll have a little context as to what uh, the gospel reading is, is all about. When Jesus had spoken these words, those words from our handout, verse 16, verse 33, that in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence." with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world." And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. You think about that, and it, it does continue, but those I don't want to steal from the thunder for next week's Bible class for chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. But you think about those words that Jesus prays for you, and you think about the peace 
that he desires for you, the peace that is found in him. That even though in this world you have tribulation, we are to take heart because he has overcome the world. It's quite a powerful thing to think about that, that as God in the flesh, God incarnate, praying for you. Oh, and that he feels the weight of the burden. Yeah, exactly. Well, the burden. So the burden, the true burden that he's going to bear on that cross. He knows what is coming. So the comment was made that you can see in chapter 17 there that he feels the full weight of the burden that he is going to bear on the cross. Oh, yes. And that he, he, he does and he cares for each one of you. He cares for the whole world. And I don't want to keep going back to John 3:16, but it is a great reminder that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And here is that one and only son praying for the world, praying for the people in the world. So I'm going to open it up for questions now. I know that went a long time between uh that took a little bit to get through, but hopefully you found it to be a worthwhile exercise, and I enjoy going through that just to give a little context both before and after uh, our, our pericope for next Sunday because when you look at it in context, it does uh, the fuller picture, kind of the widescreen view. I have a professor at the seminary that loves to say that, that in, uh, by looking at it in the original language and in the context, you get the widescreen view of what's going on. So I'll open it up for any questions. Yes. Yeah, so the comment is made is as the world changes, it's amazing how much God's uh, plan for his people and how much his, you know, his people have remained the same, even though things, I'm sorry, continue. it is, and you think back to those words of David we started with, and again, not to harp on this too much, but, you know, think about where we go with our burdens and that word cast, you know, is literally to throw. You think I'm not a very good fisherman. I've only gone a couple times and hardly ever caught anything. But you think about throwing, you know, casting your burdens onto God, throwing it onto him and that he will sustain you. That it's not about your uh, goodness, but rather God's goodness that we get this great source of comfort. All right. Any other questions or comments? Nope. All right. Well, why don't we end here with the word of prayer? We got about about three minutes left, but I don't want to. That's that's just too little time to get into a full reading. So let's end with the word of prayer this morning. Dear Lord, we come to you as the ones whom your Son died for to redeem, casting our burdens unto you, whatever those burdens may be. We know that. Uh, there will be tribulation in this world, but the comfort that comes from knowing that in Christ there is true peace, a peace which transcends all understanding. Now may you guard and keep our minds in that true peace of Christ which transcends all understanding, and in Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.